You're listening to the Paul Hutchings Podcast, brought to you by paulhutchings.net, teaching you to be free through principle-centered lessons on personal development, online marketing, and financial literacy. Ladies and gentlemen and Freedom Crusaders, this is Paul Hutchings coming to you live from my home office here in Blackfoot, Idaho. And today, my friends, I couldn't be more excited about the guests that we're going to be interviewing and learning from. Uh, This is a gentleman who has had a very special uh, place in my entrepreneurial journey. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read his bio, give him a little bit of an introduction in his own words, and then I'll introduce him in some of my words, and uh, and then we'll go from there. So this is uh, Mr. Gary Norris, the rebel entrepreneur. He's a rebel entrepreneur, real estate investor, motivator speaker, and social media expert. This inspiring entrepreneur is making strides in the world of real estate investing, entrepreneurial empowerment, and beyond. Speaker and motivator, Gary speaks to businesses, networking groups, and schools on the power of proper mindset and motivation. Gary also speaks and trains at real estate investing and education seminars and conferences. I got to just insert my own personal thoughts about Gary because when I first got started in entrepreneurship, I was living in a single wide trailer house and I got introduced to Gary uh, actually through a direct sales program that we were a part of. And I remember hearing him speak on stage uh, here in uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is about 30 minutes away from where I live. I remember uh, seeing how much money he was making. I remember learning about real estate investing from him and and, and getting inspired to build passive cash flow. Uh, And so he had a really pivotal role in my early days as an entrepreneur and uh, just inspired me when I had no success and I was just forming those dreams of freedom. And another thing about Gary, I'm going to say two other things. I remember going to an event in my early days, I didn't have any success. And I was just trying to kind of figure things out. And uh, my friend Arnold and I, Arnold is from Burundi, Africa. And we traveled to this event, to this uh, entrepreneurial educational platform that we'd invested in. And we're at this networking event in this apartment. And there's a lot of these entrepreneurs, there's like big money earners like Gary and others. And I remember specifically Gary, out of all of the people there, Um, shaking my hand and getting to know me and just saying, Paul, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And just, it was almost like he metaphorically reached out his hands and gave me a hug and let me know that I was on the right path. And uh, that experience impacted me deeply, Gary. And and I I just, I love you for that, man. I love your heart. You know, and that's one of the things that we strive to do on this show is not just interview people who are making big money like you, but we want to interview people who have great hearts for people. And so you are that. And Gary has great experience in network marketing. He's had success in that. Uh, Direct sales, a great success in that. Real estate investing, great success in that. I think you're an agent right now. Is that right as, as that well? Is, yeah. Um, he's been a, uh, he's hosted his own radio show for years. In fact, here in Southeast Idaho, I remember t- tuning on the AM station, Rebel <laughs> Entrepreneur Radio, right? So, dude, man, I'm just so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Holy cow. Just kind of just do the whole thing again. Just gloat me up one more time. <laughs> well, it's on replay, so you can listen to the oh, podcast. Oh, good. After. I'll make sure my wife watches it repeatedly. <laughs> Dude, I remember meeting you at that uh, that that house. It was, we rented like a, we we're like 15 of us rented a, a rooms out of this big home in Phoenix, Arizona. And that's where yep. I reached out my, I guess, metaphorically hand and gave you a big hug with my hand. But I remember meeting you and Arnold there. And the reason I do is um, I 
well, there was this cord and this, this, you know, this, I call it spud blood. We were both from Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was like a little connection. And I remember meeting you just prior to that as well, when I just saw you and Arnold, like these two young eyes wide open <laughs> entrepreneur is the way I want to be. And there's a world of excitement out there, even though you're not there yet, you're just starting. And I just was gravitated towards you and towards Arnold for that very reason. And, uh, you know, it's come now 10, over 10 years, my friend. Yep. And um, it's like, it's like 11 years ago when that happened. And we've become really good friends. And what's funny is we've never necessarily participated in the same opportunities at the same time, but we've always kind of bounced ideas and watched each other grow and succeed and crush it in the different areas that we went as we forked off, but we never left the world of entrepreneurship. And that's right. what's kept us together. And your journey is an inspiring journey for me. Uh, truly, it is. Uh, I appreciate that, Gary. And Absolutely. you've had a big part of it. So thank you for, for that role. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. I want to know, who is Gary Norris? Like, where does he come from? And uh, tell me a little bit about your background growing up. Well, it's interesting. I, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. And when we were 10, when I was 10 years older, my, my great grandparents passed away and they had a home in Twin Falls. And my parents said, we're moving to Idaho and we're going to move into great grandma's house. And so we did that. And I bounced around a little bit while we were in Idaho. Um, in three years, we lived in Twin Falls and Jerome and then went to Boise. And then we landed back in Idaho Falls, Idaho, when I was just turning 13. What I really uh, so I claim Utah and Idaho as my home, my dual citizenship. <laughs> and I live in Utah now. Again, I moved here six years ago from, from Idaho Falls and we're in Orem and we really love it here. But, you know, I was raised in a typical normal family where, you know, you want to play little league, you want to race your little go-karts, you want to go throw, you know, those, you go to 7-Eleven and, and buy those little wooden paper airplanes, those little wind-up rubber band propellers and throw them in the 70s. I was a typical 1970s kid growing up and um, got a paper route when I was um, a youngster. I, I, I decided I was going to deliver the newspaper and uh, I did and started doing that when I was when I was 10 in Twin Falls. And then by the time I was 11, I really, they did it. They did a, they did a, everyone's dream, right? Have a paper route. My dream, my original dream, Paul, I want to be a garbage man because it was so freaking cool to see him go down my street and the cool guys got to stand on the back of the garbage truck and, and roll past my neighborhood. <laughs> and I thought that is what I want to be when I grow up. So to cut my teeth, I thought I could at least walk the neighborhood and throw newspapers early in the morning on porches and get tips and you know, I did that for like four years. I did it in Twin Falls, did it in Jerome, didn't do it in Boise, moved to Idaho Falls. And I did a paper out again. But I remember when I was 11, they had a promotion that if you could get so many subscribers to get on the newspaper, I could win a trip to San Francisco and watch the 49ers play the Rams and go to Alcatraz and go to one of the amusement parks, some great, it wasn't Disneyland, it was up in San Francisco, but an amusement park. And I won that trip. I was 11. And wow. everyone else that won that trip, they were like 12, 13, 15, 16. I had to be the youngest kid on that bus going from Idaho to California, knowing nobody. And it was one of the funnest things I did. It was my first taste of what it is like to like make money on your own, be a 
I didn't know the word entrepreneur then, but to have a business, I didn't know that was a word. It was just like, I was making money. I was delivering newspapers, making money. And I won a freaking trip. And I remember <laughs> when I was at the, when I was at the uh, amusement park, I called my friend in Idaho. I just wanted to take, say hi to him. And so this is how funny and crazy I was. I didn't know this is back when we actually had a phone and you had to dial a number and you had to maybe like talk to an operator at sometimes. The only way I knew to dial on distance was making collect calls because my parents taught me when we were out of town, they would, I would hear them make collect calls, meaning you're calling someone and they're taking the bill for it. Mm -hmm. So I called my friend collect and <laughs> he's like 11 or 10 years old and his parents like, there's a call from a Gary Norris, a collect call, do you accept the charges? And the mother goes, Yeah. Gary, is everything okay? Yeah, is Bill there? <laughs> we talked for like 20 minutes, didn't even know it cost him like 15 bucks. But um, there's my my backstory, I guess, as being a kid, it was a super traditional America. And I loved my paper route, did it for like four years. That's so funny. Were your uh, parents entrepreneurs or did they have traditional jobs? You know, it's interesting because I didn't realize it, but my 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 dad really, really was. And I didn't see that manifest and recognize what that was till I was in high school. But um, my dad owned a service station. He raced cars out at the Bonneville Salt Flats and he was really good. He, he, he owned his own service station. Wow. He wrecked a car in a race. Actually, his race car was wrecked, I believe by my mother, because it was also their daily <laughs> driver. My dad raced a 62 Pontiac Tempest. It was the fastest in the state of Utah. And he made money racing it and he owned a service station. And wow. then mom wrecked the car because it was also the family car and took my dad out of the races. And then um, eventually my dad uh, ended up somehow, I don't know if he'd lost it or sold it, but the service station went bye-bye. Maybe there was more kids and dad went and got a job. And then I remember my dad, um, when we moved to Idaho, he took a job with the state and he became like just a worker. Like I, mm -hmm. I know he went from entrepreneur to I'm just settling and I'm going to go take a job and raise my family. My mom was a nurse and she worked and she was like a, a main breadwinner until my dad got this state job as a, as a building inspector. And he did that through high school. But then my dad got into politics when we, when I was just in high school and he ran for, he worked for the County assessor and he ran against his own boss for County assessor. Oh my in, gosh. In Bonneville County, right there in Idaho Falls. Wow. And, and I was like a, a junior in high school. And my dad lost the primary election to his boss by 63 votes. And my boss or his boss fired him after the what? election. And oh my dad my was fired. And so uh, that was after the primary. So my dad ran as a write-in candidate against his boss. And it got on the news and everything because he was fired by the county assessor after losing in the primary. And my dad, to this day, still holds the record in Bonneville County for a write-in campaign. Now, he didn't win, but I remember pounding signs, Norris for assessor, all over <laughs> Idaho Falls. And, and he got more write-in candidate votes than any other write-in candidate in the history of Bonneville County. Oh, my and gosh. Still lost, but um, it was kind of a fun story. And I just watched my dad from that time forward. He was just always doing different things. He, they, you know, Shackley and a, a thing called Future Line tennis shoes. He was in direct sales marketing tennis shoes in the in the eighties before <laughs> Nike came out, and it was it was pretty cool to see what my dad did. And he sold little clocks that had uh, business was like businesses would buy these little signage with plastic letters 
that businesses would hang up in their windows. They would have like a clock on it and you can put in these plastic letters that would tell you like the special of the day. He had a whole line of those and sold those. Wow. And I just admired him for doing all of that while he was working his state inspection job. And I really think I, I, I attribute my dad for a lot of my entrepreneurial stuff within me. And I didn't even know I was an entrepreneur. Dude, I didn't even know that till I got out of college. It's interesting, uh -huh. <laughs> but it was in the blood. But he, so he definitely had an in, impact on you, the leadership, the promotion, the sales, the willingness to try new things. That's the key. Dad was willing to do new things. He was willing to think outside the box. I watched him do it. Um, running for office, that's, who does that? You know, I don't know many people that run for public office that are good people <laughs> as well. <laughs> right? and, so, and, you know, he did it all without groping people. <laughs> uh, Gary's dad for president. Yeah, yeah uh, he's got bad. my vote. Good old dad passed away a couple years ago, and oh. uh, sort of love him and miss him. But it was a good, good many lessons learned. Wow. So, how did you transition? Did you did you just jump right into entrepreneurship um, out of high school and college, or it seemed like you were in pharmaceutical sales for a while? Am I remembering yeah. that correctly? Yeah. So, my mom was a, a nurse. I grew up with her. In fact, I always I, I do tell the joke. You know, mom. My mom's a nurse. She was actually, she's, she was even there the day I was born. And people go, really? That's so cool. Your mom was there when you were born? Yeah, because she was pregnant on the table. She wasn't being a nurse that day. But um, So I grew up with mom being a nurse, always working calls and then ER as a, as a younger child. And then mm -hmm. she started working as a nursing director in a day surgical center there in Idaho Falls. And she was a nursing director for like 17 years uh, through all of my young adulthood and high school days into, you know, so I was about 30 years old. And so um, I watched mom do that. While I was going through high school, I, I, I went on a mission for my church, a Mormon mission in, in the mid 80s. And I thought when I came back, I, I just knew I needed to go to college. But I thought, you know what I wouldn't mind doing is selling medical supplies. I want to go into sales. I just knew that. I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to go into sales. I loved going on the mission to New Zealand and just kind of being out and sharing what I love and what's dear, near and dear to me. And I thought, man, if I can come home and find something I could be passionate about, I could go into sales. And I'd see these medical reps come into the surgical center with my mom and they would sell their stuff and they were making great money. And so I just said, I'm going to go to college. I'll get my degree in business and I'm going to become a medical sales rep or pharmaceutical sales rep. And it was a hard goal of mine. It was a goal I wanted so bad that I remember, Paul, I interviewed, and I'm not joking, at least 200 applications I sent out for medical what? sales jobs or pharmaceutical sales jobs in like 1989 and wow. 1990 and 1991. And I just interviewed and interviewed, and it took me two I, I was ecstatic. And I, of all the jobs I landed or uh, applied for, some were recommendations with my mom and a connection to a drug rep or that became a friend and he introduced me to his boss who interviewed me. None of those connections got me the job. I got the job based off a little tiny like two line ad in the Salt Lake Tribune that said um, pharmaceutical sales reps send fax to this phone number and I'm like send your resume to this fax <laughs> number and I'm like this is bizarre it's not even like a real job interview or not a real position pharmaceutical companies and medical sales companies you got to realize in the day they would take quarter page ads 
and they would advertise them and they, they were big ads. So seeing this little two to three line cheeser in the Salt Lake Tribune, I'm like, what the heck do I have to lose? So I faxed <laughs> my resume off to it. And at the time, I my resume had my parents' phone number on it. It's like, I don't even know why, but I maybe I'd lived there. I don't even know why I was married and had, you know, I was married when this happened, but they called back to my dad and my dad calls me and said, Hey, someone called you about a, a drug rep job. I'm like, what? You're kidding. <laughs> so I interviewed for the job. They hired me. I was one of 400 people hired across the country to launch a new product. And this was 1995. And I'm sorry, I got lost track of my time, but it was 1995. And I got in the world of drug rep. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep and I loved it. And I loved it for about four years and I couldn't stand, I love sales, but I just couldn't stand working for the man. I just, mm. and that's when my mind started to open up to more entrepreneurial things. And that's when mine truly had got tuned into real estate. And in 1999, Paul, that's when I, I had a friend give me, my wife's brother gave us the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Mm. And I know you've read that book. And if, if you listeners haven't, or you watching this podcast, you need to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad to let it just open up your mind to the possibilities that are out there that you're not even aware of. And that opened my mind to real estate. And fast forward, well, not fast forward, but at that same time, I was living in Brigham City, Utah as a drug rep. And I watched this neighbor in my, a guy in my neighborhood who, so this time I'm like 33, 34, he's like 26 years old and he quits his job. He has two little babies. I'm like, what do you, you quit your job? What are you doing? It's <laughs> like, I'm doing real estate. And I'm like, but you're so freaking young. I'm jealous. What you, tell me. So he just showed me what he was doing. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do what he did while I'm a drug rep. And I did that in night and started that in 2000. And by 2004, I quit my job as a drug rep. I, I just bailed. Actually, it was March 8th, 2005. So I did real estate for about five years on my own. By the time I was able to quit my job, which I became certifiably unemployable on March 8th, 2005. So it's been about 13 years coming up. Yeah. Freedom day, baby. Freedom yep. day. That's it. So that, so you, you shared some really interesting stuff. I want to jump back to a couple of things that you said. The first was when you talked about applying to 200 different places to get the job that you wanted. At because least. a lot of times, like in entrepreneurship, we read these books and they tell these stories about like, you know, you're going to face a lot of rejection, but you just got to keep going. And sometimes we're like, that's just like rah, rah stuff, right? But seriously, like what the essence of what you went through with that, have you seen that play out in your entrepreneurial journey? And, and if so, like how, and, and do you attribute that essence to some of the success that you've had? It is the epitome of what you need to do as an entrepreneur is you need to have persistence. We're taught that Napoleon Hill teaches that all the successful people he encountered and he interviewed over all the years and think and grow rich. One of the keys is persistence. Ogmandino says that in the greatest salesman in the world. One of the keys is persistence. And you need to throw in another thing and that's called resilience. You've got to have that resilience within you because persistence pays off and resilience helps you continue to be persistent. It was just a goal of mine. It was like, it was bigger than a goal. It was a dream. I wanted to be a drug rep. I just thought that the, the, the sheer fact that I would get a company car 
you mind you, I'm driving around a cheeser. I'm <laughs> I'm young married. I I drive a beat up car and a drug rep gets a brand new one for free. And I got a $30,000 budget to buy food, which is why I gained 100 pounds in eight years. <laughs> but but I had $30,000 budget to feed doctor. I just wanted that lifestyle. I wanted to say, to me, the epitome of a sales professional was a drug rep or a medical supply rep. That was just me in my head. I don't know what it is for you. In your head, there's something in your mind that everyone watching this or listening, they have a vision of what their ideal dream, if there was a dream job, what it is. For me, it was that. And I was going to do nothing until I achieved it. And it took me two years. I was a salesman for a fence company for that whole two-year period. And sometimes my paychecks wouldn't clear because it was a small company. And that would force me to go out and make sales, to bring in sales in advance to get my paycheck to clear. And I did it for two years. And and I loved it the whole time, but I wanted to be that professional sales rep. And then I did it for four years, actually, Paul, and I quit and went and worked with... um, with Roger Ball, who you know, and I, I went and worked for an entre- a dot-com startup in 2000. And then when that didn't succeed as much as we would hope, I was back in the job market and my wife said, you're becoming a drug rep again. So I got <laughs> hired really quick again and I did it for four more years. So I had an eight year career as a drug rep with a year and a half gap in between. And, wow. um, and then I quit in March of 2005 because my real estate was taking off. Wow. And so you said that um, you got introduced to real estate and then that's how you were able to quit your job as a drug rep. Is that right? So you didn't get introduced to direct sales. You got introduced to real estate and then direct sales came after that. Yeah, that's right. That now right? I was introduced to direct sales and, you know, I have a lot of fun stories because, you know, even as a young college kid and you're working summer jobs, you get enticed when the old guys are telling you about how you can make money in Shackley or Amway. And yeah. it was appealing to me. It really yeah. was. And so I joined some of these programs. I joined Rexall. I don't know if you're, a lot of people know who Rexall is, but it was, used to be the corner drugstore. And I think now they're called Unicity is their actual company now. But I joined Rexall in 96. And that was when I was a drug rep. And I, I got my drug rep job, but I was already a network marketer, right? In Rexall. And I was successful to the point where I had made a couple thousand dollars a month, a couple times. And for me, that was huge. And, but I joined lots of funny, I joined a thing called Megastacks. It was around for like a week. And just the name was so hokey sounding that I made nothing. It cost 50 bucks to join. I probably spent 50 bucks telling people about it. And I was so embarrassed that I quit. But I did that like a hundred times. No, not necessarily, but I was just always chasing a dream. And I never knew what was going to be reality, what was going to be real. But there was just that dream inside of this guy, not realizing that it was an entrepreneurial dream until I was in my thirties. But no, I divvied and dallied and played in it, but I, it wasn't until I did real estate on the side of my professional sales job as a, as a drug rep that I, I created success to the tune of, you know, I was replacing my income. Hmm. And I did that with real estate with no training and no knowledge. And that's when I quit. Paul, I said, if I can make 80000 a year flipping four houses a year, two in the spring, two in the fall, 20 grand a house in little old Idaho, what in the world could I possibly do if I spent full time looking into it and actually learning about real estate? Because I had no professional training. I wasn't an agent. I, I've taken no seminars or boot camps, nothing as, a, as an investor. And so when I quit my job in March of 05, I sought out in particular real estate mentoring for investors. And, and that's eventually how I connected with you in 2006. I, I had 
had been, I, you know, I had plugged in with a, a great company that was teaching me a lot of new skills and I was doing new things. And that's when I decided to heck, I might as well start, start a radio show in Southeast Idaho called the real estate rebels is what we were at the very beginning. And um, me and one of my buddies that I met as an investor were like, why don't I get my real estate license? <laughs> why don't you get your mortgage license? Why don't we do a radio show and we'll get leads and we can promote me being an agent, you being a mortgage guy. And if people want to be investors, we can plug them into this educational program and they pay us a nice commission, which was a direct sale. And that was amazing and fun. And it just propelled my career and really got me to be what I am today, honestly. Motivator, so <laughs> speaker, trainer, entrepreneur, loving everything. So a couple things. One was I want to highlight the fact that you seem to be really open-minded and willing to try a lot of different things because it seems like in society today, people tend to make fun of people like that. Like if you've been made fun of, I've been made fun of. It's like, oh, Paul's doing another thing. I mean, I've been oh, through yeah. 14 or more different network marketing companies, direct sales companies, and they're like, ha, 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 ha. He's trying another thing, right? But look how successful you are. And that was your path. Like you were just open-minded and willing to try new things. And if something didn't work, you tried something else and just, you know, kept on. So that seems to be a really great trait. You know, anyone watching this, you just need to realize that that's just a fact. Some of the closest friends, and I'm not kidding, family members, they're the, the biggest the biggest crabs that you have in your life. They're the ones that are saying, you're not going to succeed. You're doing that again. Oh, there goes Gary off to another one <laughs> to the point where I had a particular very close sibling that wouldn't talk to me because she just said, all you do is, uh, now I just said it was a sister. Darn it, that narrowed down to two. <laughs> but um, I had a sister that she's like, all you do is do things for money and all you, when you talk to anyone in the family, it's all about money. And I, and she just avoided me for like two years and I don't blame uh, her, I guess, because I made her uncomfortable. And yeah. I had to come to a point when I realized I will let anyone think what they want to think and about me because it's their business. And it's not my business. What people think about me, Leslie Householder taught me that who wrote the Jackrabbit factor. And she's a great lady. We had her on our radio show up in Idaho. She called in from Phoenix and she taught me that concept because I said to her, Leslie, I said one day, I'm like, um, she's become a really good friend of our family, her and her husband and their all their kids. And I said, I want everyone to love my radio show. I remember saying that in like 2006. <laughs> and she's like, Gary, you don't want everyone to love your radio show in 2007. I, she's, I said, why? He goes, because if that's what you try to do is please everyone, then you're not being true to your core self. Mm -hmm. The minute you give up caring what people think about you and you care what you think about you, that's when you will achieve a greater success. And that lesson was so important. It's probably one of the, it's a top three lesson I've learned in my life as an entrepreneur is I don't need to make people happy and I don't care what people think of me. Well, I care but I can't control it. And it's their business, not my business. And that really, Paul, kind of set me free. It really wow. did. It set me free. And I really don't care. And it's okay that people don't like that I'm in networks marketing. It's, it's okay that people don't like that I'm a real estate investor. It's okay that people don't like that I do information marketing or that I make money online. I care that I do it <laughs> and I love it and other people respect it and love it and appreciate it. And so that's the crowd I go to and I let this crowd be who they are and how they are. And I love on them when I'm around them and I get away from them.
Mm. It's my so, way I work. So I got to tell you, I had a family member who said that I was money hungry. <laughs> so kind of like similar. Like she's Same like, thing. you're just always so money hungry. And I'm like, I was never money hungry. I'm freedom hungry, right? Like oh. freedom. That's what we're looking for. Right. Oh, and man. so I love that. Um, and uh, this is just good stuff, man. I really love, uh, love hearing what you're sharing. And uh, oh, the other thing is the the, the lesson uh, that Leslie taught you. And by the way, the Jackrabbit Factor. I remember that was one of the first books that I read because you recommended it. Way we back made in the people. Day. <laughs> we would make people read the book. I'd buy a case of them and say, "Read this book. If it resonates with you, I will work with you. If it doesn't, I don't want to work with you." It was one of my weeders. Wow. Yeah. And like, if I'm remembering right, like the metaphor is like people like picking up lunch, uh, lunch bags off the trail that had been handed out for them. Right. Yeah. Versus seeing a rabbit and running off the beaten path. Is that kind of the basic yeah. metaphor of the story? Go off the path, grab a rabbit. It's unlimited food instead of an empty paper sack that's laid along the trail, these lunch sacks. But yeah, it's a great story. Of that. So um, I was going to also share one thing um, that you mentioned on that lesson of living from the inside out versus from the outside in. Uh, Seth Godin, are you familiar with Seth Godin? Uh -huh. Yeah. Great author. I've been following his blog recently. And one of the things that I learned about him is he turned off his blog comments. He's like one of the most traffic blogs in the world. He has no blog comments. And part of the reason why he says he does this is because he doesn't want his message to be guided by the crowd. He wants to write and speak from the inside out and speak to, you know, who he wants to speak to. So I, I just think that's that's a great lesson, right? That's that amazing. we learn as entrepreneurs um, yeah. over time. So good stuff. So tell me, uh, when you originally quit your job, was it from house flipping? Is it, Was that the strategy that you were using? Yeah, I was using a, a lease option strategy and it's the only strategy I learned at the beginning. So I wasn't flipping, but I, in a way I was, I was holding homes for two years and then selling them. So I would build a brand new home. This is in 2000, 2001 when real estate was just starting to boom, right? And the dot-com bubble was pretty much just kind of starting to bust. And I would give a builder a thousand dollars and he would build me a brand new house. And when it got to the point <laughs> where the home, bucks? yeah, Thousand it was bucks? a new builder. You know who they are. It was Rockwell, Rockwell, Rockwell Development. Uh -huh. So I'd give them, they be, they, I, I moved into a house that was built by Rockwell. So that's how I got to know them. And as of my drug rep job, right? My brand new house. Well, then I, when I realized I just had to give them a thousand bucks and they built me my house, I said, I got an idea. What if I give you a thousand bucks and you build me another house? And then when it's about to have carpet and paint put in it, almost done, I'll advertise it for sale as a rent to own and then I'll buy it and let someone who won't qualify for a loan now because they got a sales job, they need a two-year tax history or for whatever reason, I'll buy it. They can rent it for me with an option to buy. And that was my strategy. It's the only thing I knew because that's what my friend was doing in Utah that I learned from. Mm -hmm. And so I would build two homes in the spring and people would want to be in before their kids went, uh, before the kids uh, got out of school. They wanted to get settled in and kids got out of school, have a, have a home in May. I would do two in the fall that the families would want to move into before their kids started school. And for me, it was really good. So I built two in the spring, two in the fall. And it took a couple of years for this to fruishify, right? Fruishify. There's a new word <laughs> <Fruishify>. <laughs> to come to fruition. But um, I was putting money out, getting a 30 year mortgage and putting 20% down. It was not necessarily the smartest thing to do as an investor. I don't do any of that now, but that's what I started doing. And when they would buy the house, they'd buy it for $20,000 more. 
than or more than I was than I bought it for. And I'd make I'd get money up front to go in my pocket. I'd get good cash flow every month, and I make a big chunk at the end. And selling two homes twice a year and buying two homes twice a year, I was just turning my money, but it was literally making me eighty thousand dollars a year minimum. And what's interesting is sometimes. I would have people that just wanted the home and they didn't want to wait for that builder to build them a home. I'm like, if you just want this house, go to the builder. I want this to be a rent to own. And they're like, well, no, I, I don't want to wait for them to build me a house. So I got kind of smart, Paul. I just said, this is my creativity, I guess. I said, I'll tell you what, the builder will build the same house on the lot, like next door. And it costs, you know, it'll cost $115,000 to build it. But I know that four months ago, my cost was 108 because the prices are going up. So I just went to the builder and said, hey, will you sell my house for 115 and let these people buy it and give me the difference as a credit, that $8,000 and just start me another one now? And I did that. And so even though I was buying and selling two every spring and fall, I was also just letting Rockwell sell these homes to people that didn't want to wait. And I was getting credits and I had a $60,000 credit with this company, with this builder. And that's when we built our dream home in 2007. I put 60, I just said, hey, we're going to build another house. Can I use all those credits as part of a, of a down payment? And they're like, well, yeah, we'd rather you do that anyway. We don't want to shell out 60 grand to you. And so I did that. And it was amazing how that worked out. Wow. But anyway, Very lease creative. options was my first strategy. Lease options. Yep. So let me, uh, let, let me ask you, um, I want to ask you, what is your definition of financial freedom? Do you have a definition in mind? Well, you know, I've asked that probably 950 times <laughs> as I've done presentations and stuff. And I've heard you ask it and I've heard you define it. And I get, it's amazing the different answers we get from people that say, what is financial freedom? What does it mean to be financially free? And for me, really, it boils down to, Financial freedom to me is being able to do what you want, when you want, regardless of what your financial status is. Mm. But that's kind of a flowery way to say it. Yeah. So I guess a, a more of a concrete way to say it is when you have income that comes in passively, cash flow, for example, that exceeds your outgo mm. requirements. So when you you are truly financially free. You could be a school teacher making $40,000 a year. And if you have a $5,000 monthly or a $3,000 monthly expense based upon your $40,000 income, when you have $3,000 a month coming in passively through rental cash flow or a side gig network marketing business, when it exceeds your $3,000 a month outgo and you have 3000 or more coming in, you're financially free, even if you're still a teacher. But that's the real definition of financial freedom. You're free to leave your job or get sick or take a vacation knowing that your, your monthly nut is covered with your passive income. You're speaking to my soul, brother Gary Norris. Yeah. I love I love those thoughts, and and I also love that definition because I think a lot of people, if they have this conception of financial freedom, means the Lamborghini in the driveway, the ten thousand square foot mansion, the this, the that, the plane, the private jet. Then financial freedom tends to become a goal that a lot of people don't set for themselves because they're just like, I could never yeah. have that, right? Yeah, I still drive a ten year old vehicle. So I guess I'm I. not free. 10 years old. What is that? A 2007? Yeah, actually it's older than that. It's a 2003 Yukon. I had the brand new in 2007 and brand new. And I remember giving it back to the bank in 2010 when I lost everything. 
And you know what? Mm -hmm. That $700 a month payment did not give me freedom. Mm -hmm. But I I gave it back. I lost everything. You know my story. And most truly successful people, they go through ups and downs and you need to expect it. You need to, you don't need to plan on it. You just need to know it comes and bumps come in the road. It's not easy. So it's come. You just need to just let it roll and deal with it and become a better person from it. So that's a great transition into the next question, which is tell us about a time where you felt defeated as an entrepreneur, maybe even wanted to just throw in the towel and how did you get over it and keep going? Well, the number one way for me that I felt defeated as an entrepreneur is seeing my wife um, panic, struggle, have fear, not knowing there was security for my wife. Security to her was Gary has a, a job that brings in a salary. That's security. So this drug rep job that I had, that was absolute security to my wife. Now, my wife, it took her a lot longer to transition to become an entrepreneur. And she's a great one now. She's a better one than I am. But it took her a long time to realize it. So when I left my job in 05 and quit, that was so scary to her. And frankly, it really hurt our relationship. And because she was losing the security, the financial freedom to her was Gary had a salary that would meet our expenses, not passive income that would meet our expenses. Because <laughs> right. if the passive income stops, which it can, <laughs> and it does, there's still this monthly nut. And so my biggest obstacle was, was seeing my wife's stress, struggle, and her relationship hurt. But that's also the exact same thing that kept me going is I had this bigger dream and vision and yearning to show my wife the other side of fear. And it is hard. It is hard. And then again, it is not hard. And the reason I want to say it's hard because people see it and they're like, it's this huge wall. And it is. But it was a freaking huge wall when you learn how to ride a bike too, wasn't it? Mm. You were scared to get on that bike. You were scared to take those training wheels off. You were, you were, you don't remember, but you were too scared to walk from the couch to the chair because you would fall. But now you weren't, you were too young to know, to be scared. You just got back up and you fell on your butt again. And eventually you learned to walk, but teach an adult to walk. They may never try, but riding a bike. We all remember that. I remember giving my bike away to my friend, Paul, because I wouldn't ride it. My dad said to me when he was so mad that he took the training wheels off and I refused to get on my, my bicycle and let my dad help me. He's like, I, if you don't learn to ride that damn bike, I'm going to give it to Steve, my best friend across the <laughs> cul-de-sac. My dad went to work the next day. When he came home, he's like, where's your bike? I said, I gave it to Steve. Oh, no. I am not joking. <laughs> and he was pissed. And, and uh, Take that, dad. <laughs> I, I thought I was so smart. And he's like, you go get that damn bike and you go bring it back right now. And, and he forced me to ride it. Now, obviously, I thank my dad for that. But it was so big of a wall of terror for me that it was easier for me to give it away and settle for less. Everyone has that moment. It's called the terror barrier. It's a fear. It's a wall of fear. But just like that wall of fear, when you get on the other side, you realize it was nothing. It's what fear stands for. False evidence appearing real, right? Uh, there's other, a lot of other acronyms for it, but that is the biggest thing. So although it was hard to do this entrepreneurial journey, it was also necessary. And my wife saw the other side of that and she experienced and tasted it. 
And she was slow to come around because of a lot of pain and our financial crash in 2010 and 11 it actually started in 2008. It took us three years to totally burn. And we reset. And in 2012, we were able to recover from a huge amount, you know, multiple six figures of debt. We didn't declare bankruptcy. We stayed married and our daughter who tried to commit suicide stayed alive. So thankfully it all came back and my wife woke up in 2012 and she said, I can play in this arena. And she's amazing. She is now, amazing. Six years later. She's almost. totally amazing. Yeah. So, t- so two questions from uh, what you shared. Cause I, th- the first thing is I know that there are a lot of couples that struggle with what you just talked about and, and you, you meet and I meet a lot of people who maybe one in the relationship is more entrepreneurial and the other one is more security minded. What advice or tips would you have for um, maybe in uh, uh, for that type of couple, like either the entrepreneurial sided or the other sided, like what, what could you offer to help people get through that? Honor it. For sure, honor, especially if it's your spouse or your children. You know, if it's extended family, that's a different story. You're you when you give you marry up, you're bound to your spouse and honor your spouse's concerns. Honor them. It doesn't vision, but honor them. And you've got to do both. You got to go down the both roads at the same time. You've got to keep the spouse on board with what gives them comfort and peace and strength. And you've got to keep your journey going forward. So if that means you're working a full-time job while you're building your dream, then that's what you're doing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you need to honor it. You need to honor it. And if that's the number one thing you focus on, my wife and I have a saying now, and it's only been this way for like this year, we just kind of came up with this. We have to be in the highest and best energy of joy for each other. And if we can be in the highest and hold a space of the highest, best energy of joy for my spouse and she for me, then as we work together, we can overcome anything. What are these challenges that come up? We still face challenges. We've restructured our entire business in 2017. It was really, really, um, it was really interesting to see how we play off each other with support, fear, even, even at our stage. And honoring your spouse is number one most important thing you can do. And letting him or her have a say. We have a good friend, Paul. I, we both have a lot of friends that are in this situation. One in particular, this gal, she's an amazing entrepreneur and an advocate of uh, humanitarianism. And her husband has this just, you know what, when we hang out with friends, don't even talk business. Mm-hmm. Let's just hang out with friends. I don't want to think about my work when I come home. I don't know why you'd like to think about entrepreneurship when you come home. And she has to try to balance that with her husband. And he's the one that is abrasive towards it. And so Sometimes when we do things together, we just, we don't talk business. We don't talk entrepreneur things. And sometimes you can, and you just have to create and find that balance. But the most important thing you can do is honor. I think I've overkilled it. Sorry. I love it. That's great <laughs> advice. Honor and a little bit of time. You're super inspiring in that regard. Um, That's true. Thank you. You did, you did mention the, the, the big setback that you guys had where you lost everything and, and had a reset. Uh, what are there any tips or things that I mean, obviously hindsight is 2020 and, and, uh, and all of that, but are, are there things that you would recommend or that you could have done or that you would offer to other people that might uh, help them avoid a situation like that? Well, the, we always want to avoid them and there are ways to help avoid them. And that is number one, by being on the same page. Now our big crash came because I wasn't honoring my wife in her decisions financially. I was thinking, well, I know this worries her, but I'm going to do it and I'll show her. She'll see it. Uh, I See, we have this vision, right? Entrepreneurs, you have this funnel where 
your ideas and your, your potential money comes in this funnel, and then it really narrows up. And what comes out the other end is the reality. So you may have all these funnel of ideas and money, like real estate deals and network marketing, uh, future monthly earnings and bonuses and, 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 and everything. And then what comes out the bottom of this funnel is reality. It's the groceries, <laughs> it's the mortgage, it's the car payment, it's the school, it's the insurance. And my dreams up here and my wife's reality is in here. This is not good when I only focus on my dream mm. and I'm not paying attention to her reality, which is my reality. Instead, I was sometimes I was telling her, yeah, but Carolyn, look up here at the dream. And she's like, look at the freaking reality. <laughs> and we had to learn how to share in that. And when she, when, when she saw the dream, it would, it would just be like too unreal to her. She would only see the reality. A turning point though was when she saw one of the dreams plop out and it was a huge plop out. It was like a $35,000 check that plopped out. And that happened in 2012, this particular experience. But that she didn't even believe that that was going to happen. Even though I told her it was coming. I told her I'm going to Las Vegas to this, uh, to this, to this award ceremony. And I'm going to be, pre pre be presented with a $35,000 bonus check. And she's like, well, here's the deal, Gary. You go to Las Vegas. Fine. But let me ask you a question. Are you making money while you're in Las Vegas? I'm like, technically, no. If you're here, are you able to do things to make money? Money making activities. Yes, but you're going to go to Las Vegas when you could, you could, will they give you that check if you don't show up? Yeah. Then why would you go get that check if they'll give it to you anyways? I'm like, <laughs> what do I say to this? Right? Like, damn it. No, I'm like, <laughs> so I said, well, Carolyn, being on that stage with 400 people that are on our team in the audience is kind of a money-making opportunity because <laughs> there could be some inspiration there and motivation. And she's like, whatever, you go do your Las Vegas thing, but you have like a hundred dollar budget. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I carpooled with like three guys and we all carpooled down there on my team. $35,000 like, check and you're going to Vegas with a hundred dollar budget. I'm going to Vegas on a hundred dollar budget. Like, like, and I'm like, well, maybe it was more than that. I may be exaggerating, but that night before that check was coming, my kids and my wife, uh, two of the kids said, you know, or maybe it was my wife's idea. I don't remember which, because she tells it a lot better than I do. And she might be around the corner behind me and she might be able to hear me right now. So I got to be careful. <laughs> no, but she, um, she decided let's make an all night drive and let's show up in the morning and surprise dad. And I'll be danged if when I was just about to go up on stage, they appeared in the back of the room, my wife, my daughter and my son, wow. and the, the man presenting that $35,000 check to me saw them in the back and called him up on stage. Oh, and that was a turning point for my wife. She's like, I realized this might be an important thing. I needed to be there to support my husband. Oh, and so we had the funnel, right? And we had reality. She finally jumped into my funnel to support me. It was the most important thing that ever could have happened to me. And, my, and this was just five years ago. This is 2012. So we've had like this 10-year journey already in entrepreneurship and real estate. And she's finally on the same page with me. And she has been off and on, but this was a big this was after our crash. She was on my page and she got up there. And when the microphone was being handed me to say something to get that check, 
She grabbed that microphone <laughs> and my wife took about 90 seconds and she gave her own version of the testimonial. And there was not a dry eye in that audience. Wow. And I'm telling you what, I couldn't even hardly speak after that. And we, I got like a poster. Someone took a picture of me holding this check and made a poster out of it, which I do have in my office downstairs. <laughs> but that posterized moment was not the moment for me that made it awesome. The posterized moment was my wife talking to that microphone for that 90 seconds on what freedom really is. And it inspired so many people there. They still talk about it sometimes. They from our friends that were there. And that is what propelled my wife to become what she became just instantly. She just welcomed the idea of I'm an entrepreneur and there's, there's a way that I can make an impact. And since then we live in this funnel together and we live in reality together. And that is bliss when you can get to that point. Wow, that is so inspiring. And, and just in case we have listeners or viewers who don't know your wife, uh, guys, she is like magazine cover, speaker, author, <laughs> trainer, motivator. Like she's like, I had no idea that there was this whole backstory. Like I just thought you guys were always like power couple entrepreneurs together. So this is just such great inspiration for anyone who might be uh, struggling awesome. with some of those issues. So um, we don't have a lot of time left, Gary, and this has been such a valuable interview, but I do have a few rapid fire questions that I'd love to ask you if that's okay. All right. I, I, you didn't prep me for this, so go ahead. I didn't prep you. Um, so you've, you've mentioned a couple, but any books that you often or uh, like most often gift to, to, to people that you care about? So number one still, because it impacted my life so much, The Jackrabbit Factor is must read uh, the jackrabbitfactor.com. You can get a free download of the book, an ebook. So go get it and read it. Um, we talked about Think and Grow Rich, right? Um, another really, really good book right now that um, I'm really loving is, well, there's the old standard, Good Think and Grow Rich. That book is just gold. And that's when I listen on audio, audio book now, and just kind of refresh yourself. But Think and Grow Rich is good. Um, um, I'm now doing... Um, Shoot, I have to look at my phone and see what some of those are. Give me another question. I'm going to fire back another one real quick. But uh, mentors who've impacted your life. Mentors. Well, for sure, um, one of my great mentors is Dave Blanchard, uh, who runs the Augmentino Company now. is the CEO of the Augmentino Company. Maybe his son, Paul, is the new CEO, but Dave Blanchard was one of my business coaches. And he was the coach I hired that taught me that, it was, that I can make $100,000 in a month. I mean, if I, I never thought I could do it in a year. When I did in a year, he proposed the thought of what about doing it in, in a month, him and Leslie Householder. And I set that as a goal and I, I didn't do it in a month. I, I took me 36 days, but I did it. Oh, wow. I made $100,000 in a 36-day period. And that was um, just a great mentor, Dave Blanchard, a great business mentor. Um, another one of my mentors would be, um, it's in, my wife is a great mentor of mine now, Carolyn. And um I think her and I, um, we've sought out some mentorship that has been very valuable. Um, uh, Chris Crone played a big part in our in our life um, when we were kind of going through our financial crash and our recovery. Dave Blanchard was my big mentor that led me to the greatness, and then we had our crash. But um, your mentors can be free. They can be a book. Mm. Your mentors do not have to pay for them. Now, I encourage you, find someone you do pay for them. Um, and we we charge a hefty price for mentorship and people love it and it's well worth it. But you don't need to to start off. You could get a book and you can let other people like this. This podcast is your mentor right now. Just think what Paul does for you guys right now. You have access to it's great mentoring. 
Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, networking tips. You're, you're like, when I think about great networkers, you are like one of the people that comes right to the top of the list. Like what networking tips do you have for network marketers, direct sales people, real estate people? So number one rule I have, I will participate in a networking opportunity if it's moral, ethical, and fun. So fun for me isn't lotions, potions, and pills. That's fun for some people, but it's just not for me. But moral, ethical, and fun, if it's those three components are concluded in that opportunity, it's worth exploring. It's worth playing around in. Um, the number one tip I have is it's not about you. It's about other people. And you don't make it about you. You make it about other people. And I guess, Paul, I got it burned, and I could do it in 30 seconds, but it's the KLT factor. You have to be known, liked, and trusted. Ah. You will never be, no one will do business with you unless they trust you. So to be trusted, no one trusts you until they like you, and no one can like you until they know you. So first you got to be known, but I know a lot of jerks I won't do business with. <laughs> and I like a lot of people that I wouldn't do business with because I don't really trust them, but I like them. Uh -huh. But it's the trust. So it's the KLT factor. How do you build the trust? You build trust by serving, giving value, providing more than what you receive, be a giver, not a taker. And when people realize like Paul Hutchings, you're the epitome of a freaking giver. Oh, You've done okay. your, your life Academy, this podcast, you give value and you gave it for free for years before you turned it into a program that people pay for. But then you turn around and you give a way to make money from your program by becoming an affiliate and they make four times more than you make or more because <laughs> you split it with partners. And so you've got to give value. And when you give value and you give a relationship of entrepreneurship, now they trust you and they will do business with you. And that's key. Mm, so powerful. The KLT factor. I've never heard it expressed quite that way. That's going to stick with me and our listeners, Gary. So thank you for that. Last question. Um, and then I want to give everyone a chance to connect with you if that's okay. All righty. What role does spirituality play in the life of the rebel entrepreneur? Man, I have never been asked that in my life, but leave it to you <laughs> to ask that. But, you know, when I look back, every peak of our success in business has been when we're in one with our creator, when we're, we feel like we're in the same purpose. Dave Blanchard, who was my greatest mentor, he told me, Gary, the secret to success and how I did the 100 grand in 36 days, you start every morning with an accountability to you, your your spouse, and your creator, whatever that is to you, you know, we all have a we all have a higher power. For me, it's my my heavenly Father, my God, spiritual creation. Have an accountability with Him in the morning and ask Him to help you be a tool to impact people's lives for good. And if that's how you start your morning every day, you end it every night by being accountable, returning and reporting basically. Mm -hmm. Here's how my day went. And I tried to be open to helping people that came across my path today. So what that means is when someone pops into your mind, and we all have this happen, you think of someone you haven't thought of for two years or 15 years, or someone you see all the time, but you just think of, I wonder how they're doing. I take that as a message of, I need to make a connection and you connect mm -hmm. with them. And I've, as I've done that, and it takes a lot of effort. I don't do this every day, Paul. I do this 
I should do this every day. And if, if I could, I'd be much more successful. But as you have those thoughts, those moments, you reach out and you connect with people, not with the idea of, can I get them in my business or can I help them make me money? Can they help me? How can I just help them? What do they need? What, what's in need of? And if I can just make out and reach out, you are amazed. I've been amazed with what comes about of that. Spiritual things have happened, monetarily blessed things have happened, and nothing has happened. But you never know what you could do by simply reaching out. And I know people had reached out to me, they have no idea how big of an impact that was from a random reach out. And it means the world to people. And that's kind of how I create or not create, treat myself spiritually as I try to stay that type of a connection with how I can serve and connect people. Mm, I love those thoughts, Gary. That is so powerful. This has been such a great interview. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. How do people find and connect with you if they want to get to know you and learn more from you? Um, you know, probably the best way is, um, well, Facebook for sure, Gary Norris. You can find me on Facebook, but um, Rebel Biz Radio. Rebel Biz Radio is one I call myself the Rebel Entrepreneur. And um, I, I too have an off and on podcast that I do. And I try, a lot of it's created towards real estate, but now, but um, you can still find me at Rebel Biz Radio or getyourrebelon.com. <laughs> I and love uh, that. <laughs> yeah, you could reach out to me that way. Is awesome. it rebelbiz.radio or? No, Rebel it's rebelbizradio.com. Yeah. rebelbizradio.com ladies yep. and gentlemen freedom crusaders if you're a freedom crusader i believe that gary is someone that you should probably have in your network and follow because as you can see from this interview he is just pure value and loves the people got a great heart so gary thank you so much and all of our listeners out there thank you so much for tuning in if you enjoyed the show please go to itunes and give us a, a great review if you'd like to be in tune for more shows like this feel free to go to my website at paulhutchings.net and i'll make sure and get you a, a future content as well as other great content uh, on my email newsletter. So with that, whatever you do, always go for your dreams. Thanks guys. Take care. And Gary, thank you so much again, thank man. You, buddy. I love you. You're so inspiring. Crusade on brother. <laughs> <laughs> Crusade on. Bye for now guys. All right. See you. Bye. Hey there, my friend, this is Paul Hutchings. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope this has been a great investment into your better future to make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes and bonus content. Please visit paulhutchings.net and click the podcast link in the menu bar to subscribe. Thanks again for listening and whatever you do, always go for your dreams.